Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. I've named this show for my latest project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. It's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming it at novices and strugglers, those who've tried to read the scriptures before, but gotten stuck. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. And also I'm looking to start Zoom groups across the country going through the Word Diet. So if you're interested in that, shoot me a message through Facebook or email. For now, we're in the book of Revelation, challenging book, but a great book, understandable and applicable, uh, usually not with not very much help. I can be helpful, but uh, you don't need me. I think that's one of the things uh, that you get from the book of Revelation is that a lot of it's more accessible than you would have thought. But today is different. Uh, we're t- going to talk about the millennium and a little bit on the rapture. And this is some heavy, debatable sledding. So I think I'll bring a lot to the table today. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Now, last week we did Revelation 19, and you can find that show and all the older shows on Spotify under the word diet. Chapter 19 has the last of the 14 praise choruses. It has the wedding of the Lamb to the church. And then Christ, the rider on the white horse, shows up and delivers judgment to the beast uh, and the false prophet. Today we move from relatively clear passages about the end to a passage that has elicited tons of debate. And we'll be in verses 1 through 6. It does get uh, easier after today, but today is some relatively rough sledding. But I think I can help you understand uh, this tough and historically debatable passage. So as we're doing this, some details will be very clear. As always, we want to focus on the bigger concepts, and I'll try to point out the various uh, interpretations depending on how you read it. So we're going to be interested in both the nitty-gritty, but especially the big picture as we go forward. Lord, thank you for today, and I pray uh, your blessing every time I do this show, Lord, but today especially, given the challenges that we face in interpreting this passage and the many different ways it can go, I pray for a clear mind, uh, an effective tongue, and ears that can listen, not just to satisfy our curiosities, but to help us understand that you're sovereign over history, what you want for us and from us because of the book of Revelation, because we know the end of history. In Jesus' name, amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station, and this show. We'll take a break before we get rolling. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6 today. The main topic is the millennium, but we'll also talk about the rapture and a few other things as as we go. I'll start reading in verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Okay, a few details and the big picture before we get to wrestling with what to do with this passage. 
Verse 1 has an angel from heaven with a key to the abyss. Same thing we saw in chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, as then, we're not exactly sure who this is. Could be Michael. Uh, Jude 9 seems to give an indication of that. Some even think this is Jesus. Uh, Jesus is an angel slash messenger of a sort. Not a common interpretation, but a possible one. Uh, verse 2, with his other hand, so he's doing all this with one hand, at least that's the picture of it. The angel seizes Satan and binds him for a thousand years. Verse 3, he's locked and sealed in the abyss for the thousand years to prevent him from deceiving the nations. That's a small phrase we'll come back to later. And then the end of verse 3, he's later going to be released for a short time. That passage is actually uh, developed in verses 7 through 9, but not a topic we'll get to this week. I like what Matthew Henry says here, neither the strength of the dragon nor the subtlety of the serpent was sufficient to rescue him, right? An angel with one hand uh, is able to restrain him. And it's an ironic reversal of the sealed tomb uh, from Matthew 27, 66. We've talked about how in Revelation, the devil and the beast have been imitating God, and now God imitates them. They thought they had Christ sealed up, uh, but then they didn't. It's also worth noting that the binding of Satan must be at least somewhat figurative because the devil is a spirit. You don't bind spirits with chains. Maybe you need spiritual chains, whatever that would look like. Uh, the apocalyptic here is pretty strong, right? The style, you've got a dragon and a serpent combined, verse 2. You've got a pit and a seal in verse 3. You've got a bottomless pit that he's been thrown into. So if you take this literally, he's going to be falling, literally falling for a thousand years. Uh, that'd be quite uh, an impressive velocity, uh, at least with normal gravity. So uh, there's got to be a, a good bit of figurative uh, in this passage. How much, of course, is debatable. Big picture is that he is so weak or weakened that even an angel can subdue him. And I think one thing to wrestle with is, has Satan been reduced here, or is he always that limited, right? And that takes us to, what what's the time frame here? Uh, the two basic interpretations are looking at this as the cross or end times. And that relies on the debate about verse 1, which is which begins with, and I saw an angel coming down, that there's some kind of chronology here. The debate is whether it's a chronology of the events or a chronology of the visions. In other words, is Revelation 20 a continuation of Revelation 19 in terms of events, or is John and Christ, are they communicating it's a different vision and it can move elsewhere in history? For example, the most popular idea here is a recapitulation back to the first coming. This is posed in the past tense, but that doesn't exactly clear up where we're going here. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that we, we see these chapter breaks and get really excited about them, but remember those were added a thousand years later. And so, uh, a lot of people read this as just moving straight from 19 into 20, that the narrative continues seamlessly. And that puts the events into the future. Think of Romans 16:20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, speaking of things that have not occurred but will occur. But it's also possible to see these as um, a different vision, and then therefore, given what Revelation has often done, moving back and forth within time. And so this could be similar to the flashback we saw in chapter 12, which went back to the manger scene. And if that's the case, we're talking about events that occurred in the past, most notably what Christ did on the cross 
and through the resurrection. So let's follow that line uh, of logic for a little bit here. A really interesting passage in this regard is Matthew 12, 22 through 29, and Jesus heals a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And it's the passage that talks about every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined as he's messing with the Pharisees. But he concludes that, verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's something that is already in process in the ministry of Jesus. And then verse 29, really interesting. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. So Christ speaking there of the devil, right, from verse 26 of Matthew 12. And it seems very similar to what is being talked about here in Revelation 20. So to what extent has Satan been restrained by the ministry of Christ, by the cross, by the coming of the Holy Spirit, and so on? Luke 11.22 talks about when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. So real similar passage, parallel passage in Luke 11 talks about taking away the armor of the strong man. Or consider Jude 6, which speaks of the angels. And again, the time frame is not clear, but it's similar to what we're talking about today. Uh, Verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Again, when did this happen? How did this happen? How did the events of the, the life of Christ connect to Jude 6? Ray Robbins asks, When was Satan bound? At the cross, Satan is not destroyed, but he is restrained. Think about some other verses here. Luke 10, verses 17 through 19. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Christ replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Or John 12, 31. Now now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Colossians 2.15, having disarmed the powers and authority, authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumph, triumphing over them by the cross. Or Hebrews 2.14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Right? Those verses sound like, you know, something significant happened at the cross with respect to restraining the devil. Now, those who take the futurist view would say, well, if he's bound today, that chain is too long. Uh, There's a whole lot of stuff going on here. So how do we deal with that, you know, reasonable critique, that reasonable question? One is to picture him being in prison of sorts, but he's still able to act through his agents. Uh, The beast in chapter 13, the demons in chapter 16. If you think about when you throw organized crime bosses in prison. They can still do their work even from prison. So that's one uh, metaphor people have used to describe how the devil could still be quite active, uh, even though restrained. We also know that Satan was already limited at the time of Job, for example, right? He was still moving around, but he had limits placed on him, has always had limits placed on him. Uh, We know the devil is still active today. I've got, you know, 25 passages in my notes we could run through to talk about that. Maybe the binding is explicitly limited to deceiving the nations. Remember that phrase from verse 3. So maybe it's possible that the devil can't knock out a nation anymore. Maybe he's restrained that he can only mess with individuals within nations. 
maybe that's possible here. It's also interesting that with respect to demonic activities, he certainly seems restrained today versus the many, many references to demonic activity in the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. Uh, I've got 35 of those references in my notes from the scriptures where the, the demons are active. And at least in developed countries, we don't seem to see that today. So, you know, what's going on there? Is that a culture-specific thing? Maybe the devil is just as active, uh, say, in less developed countries, uh, but maybe in developed countries he pursues uh, other more subtle methods. We have to, to also wrestle with what's the role of the new covenant, right? What's the the power of the Spirit acting in us? And if we're more empowered, does that equal the devil being more bound? So we're not sure what to do with this. It certainly does not mean the absence of our sin or the world's temptations or the devil's power, but there's something about the present reduction of evil, external supernatural power, at least limited in his ability to stop the advance of God's kingdom. Okay, let's get started in our discussion of the millennium. First of all, the word is Latin for 1,000 years. Mille annus, or mille annum, is where we get 1,000 years from the Latin. And I like what Doug Wilson says by way of introduction. He says, the millennium is a 1,000 years of peace that Christians like to fight about. And it certainly is a debatable passage and concept. Hopefully I can teach you or help you learn how to disagree more agreeably than you maybe have in the past. One problem we have is that in all of the Bible, the the concept only appears in this one cryptic passage uh, from verses 2 through 7. There is one other reference to it, but it's not in this context. Second Peter 3, 8 famously says, do not forget this one thing with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. So a famous verse, but not really helpful here. And it's certainly not required. I mean, if the Bible talks about something once, that's sufficient. But it is curious why it doesn't talk, isn't talked about more often. There are other passages that talk about the end times. So it's, it's interesting. It uh, doesn't definitively answer our questions, but it's interesting, curious, that it only is described in this one passage. Uh, there are close connections, perhaps, to 2 Peter 3 and 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28. But as one commentator says, for any unambiguous teaching about a millennium, we have no other source than Revelation 20. Church history is not much help. It's been a heated debate since the second century, maybe earlier, and it's considered often the most controversial chapter in the Bible. It's also not correlated, tightly at least, with the four views we've been talking about throughout Revelation, preterist, historicist, futurist, and this, the more symbolic interpretations of Revelation uh, is not particularly correlated here, so that's not much help. Uh, we also know from the very beginning we've talked about apocalyptic uh, and, and the numerology in the scriptures that 1,000 could well be figurative. For one thing, how did John see a thousand years? Right? It has to be figurative uh, on that. You can't see a thousand years. Uh, and there's also other times in Scripture, forget apocalyptic, uh, where the number thousand is used. Exodus 20, verse 6, talks about a thousand generations. Job 9, 3 talks about disputing with God, and we can't answer him one time out of a thousand. Well, you can't ever dispute with God. Psalm 50, verse 10, uh, God has cattle on a thousand hills, and it doesn't mean you know, one more than 999 hills, right? It's using this figurative language. So a thousand is 10 to the third power, and the numbers 10 and 3 
are both important. And so 1,000 is figurative for affecting everyone. It's figurative for the devil being completely bound and believers being completely victorious. Ray Robbins says these readers were not talking about how long the messianic reign would be. They were talking about what kind it would be. All right, we need to take a break before we get into the three primary views on the millennium. Uh, Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to the Word Diet. We're in Revelation 20 this week, talking about the millennium in particular. We're in the middle of that discussion. We've read verses 1 through 3, and I've introduced the concept of the millennium, the what the scriptures call the thousand-year reign of Christ. And now we've reached the point where we get into the debates over the purpose, location, and duration of the millennium. There are three primary views here, and they're all named for the perspective timing of the second coming of Christ versus the millennium. Does Christ come before the millennium? That would be pre-millennial. Does he come after the millennium? That would be post-millennial. Or are we supposed to read this figuratively? And that's the view taken by the amillennial, meaning no literal millennium. Now, each view can present solid arguments from the scriptures. Each has been advocated by impressive conservative scholars, and each has enjoyed its own periods of dominance in Christian thought. And so I don't know about you, but that encourages me to be really humble about this. A lot of smart people have disagreed over time. The views seem to change over time. And so it seems like wisdom to be flexible uh, as we try and approach this topic. So let's start with premillennial, right? That's the idea that the second coming is pre the millennium, right? The second coming of Christ is before the thousand year reign of Christ can be figurative, but usually it's a literal thousand years. And so the premillennials read Revelation 19 moving right into 20, right? That Christ comes back in Revelation 19, 10, and then the thousand year reign gets started here in chapter 20. Scotty Smith sums this up by saying, Christ will return to earth in order to inaugurate this long season of peace and righteousness. And this view stems from, as the futurists often do, right? A literal and chronological reading as is possible of Revelation. Now, there are some notable exceptions. One of the ones that I find troubling here is Daniel 9, 24 through 27, that they read in a huge gap in time between the 69th and 70th week that simply is not there, at least directly. But doing, you know, reading Revelation uh, this way is attractive, and it is a big strength if it's done consistently. Uh, It tries to rely on the plain sense of the text. Again, we could debate and have talked about the debate on whether you should be reading things as the plain sense of the text when you're looking at apocalyptic, but we've had those discussions in earlier weeks, and I'm not going to recount that here. The idea here is that God's kingdom is not established by the conversion of individual souls and the works of God's church, but by the exercise of sudden and overwhelming divine power. The best uh, person I've read on this is David Reagan. Uh, He's got the best material that I've seen on this. And he notes that the millennium will fulfill God's promise that Christ will reign over the nations. We saw this in Revelation 2.27 with a reference to Christ with the iron scepter. And that refers back to Psalm 2 and the passage in verses 7 through 9. And so they would say, well, this is Christ reigning as promised in Psalm 2 verses 7 through 9. Now, people that have other views would say, hey, look, 
just one verse earlier, verse six, it says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And they would say, well, he's already reigning. Christ is already reigning. David was reigning, but Christ certainly reigns over the nations in his time. So why are you using Psalm 2? It's also consistent with God's other judgments. When we look at God judging in history, it's always been sudden, but it's also when things got so bad that they could not be reconciled. You think about the time of, of Noah or Sodom and Gomorrah. There's two big problems with this point. One is that a lot of these views, as we'll see, uh, interpretations of this particular view require two judgments, two resurrections, basically Christ coming back twice. And the text seems to read as, as if Christ is coming back once. And so that's a difficulty we'll cover later. I think the other thing that's t- tough here is that, you know, we have to wonder whether the cross, the resurrection, and the new covenant with the Spirit coming is inaugurating something new and wonderful and much more effective than what we had before. Uh, and if that's not the case, then things should degenerate and maybe God judges as he has before. But if the new covenant is different, then it's odd or difficult to assume that uh, judgment is going to look the same as it has in the past. Historically, this view was dominant through the Roman Empire. And after that, as Chris Paul uh describes it. It was a distinguished but minority perspective until recently, starting in the 19th century through the work of John Nelson Darby's, what is called dispensationalism, and later the Cyrus Schofield Reference Bible. In the American context, Mark Knoll notes the impact of the Civil War and late 19th century Protestants losing control from their perspective with the influx of Catholics uh, in American immigration. Okay, the second view is called post-millennial, right? That the thousand years comes and then the second coming of Christ. Like the amillennial view, which we'll cover next, it's a literal or more often a figurative 1,000 years depicting the entire church age between Christ's two comings. So, for example, they would point to Acts 2.17 that the last days are clearly identified as the church age. Christ here is reigning from heaven through his martyred saints and with the faithful through the church on earth. So they see things starting with Christ's decisive victory over the cross and the grave at the, at the resurrection and the key empowerment of the spirit at ascension and Pentecost. Uh, Lowry makes a, an interesting analogy comparing it to 1944's D-Day and 1945's V-Day, right? The war's not won. World War II's not won until 1945, but it was in essence won in 1944. And so Lowry sees uh, the first coming of Christ as 1944 and the second coming of Christ as 1945. Big emphasis here on the New Covenant, opening the gospel to the Gentiles, and the power and importance of both of those. Look at Daniel 2.44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. And that's a prophecy early on Christ's ministry. Or think of Christ himself, John 16.33. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. As one commentator puts it, the whole tenor of the New Testament is strikingly positive, not triumphalistic, but positive, maybe even optimistic. And if that's the case, then they believe that what Christ did on the cross, what happened at Pentecost, is going to continue to expand, that God's kingdom will expand 
as well. And if that's the case, then Christ's return coincides with final judgment. And it fulfills the biblical pattern of, you know, there's judgment and then we're done, right? There's just judgment and something completely different comes after that. So if you look at this view, they're basically expecting a general Christianizing of the world before Christ returns for judgment. So a positive, positive trajectory for history, albeit with bumps along the way. Walvern and Zook describe this as the optimistic view that Christ will reign spiritually on earth through the work of the church and the preaching of the gospel. As Russell Moore puts it, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward Jesus. If this is the case, Satan is bound at the cross and progressively less powerful as God's kingdom expands through the spreading of the gospel, the church and its effective witness to the word of God through the Holy Spirit. Satan is released at the end, but still shackled, and he's pictured as largely ineffective. This gets to the growth of the church through the disciple-making model uh, since the time of Jesus. Think about Jesus' words, John 14, 12. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Again, speaking of him going to the Father, therefore the Holy Spirit, Pentecost, New Covenant, and the like. Or even back to Haggai, chapter 2, verses 7 and 9, I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty, and in this place I will grant peace. And so a messianic reference to the greatness of Jesus. This also parallels God's desire or plan to have Christ grow in our lives, as well as the church's influence in the kingdom. As Miroslav Volf puts it, an authentic religious experience should be a world-shaping force. Why did God do all this stuff? Right? Why did he give us a spirit? Why did he send Jesus? And it's to redeem us from our sins, but uh, it's certainly reasonable to wonder if it's uh, to, to have an expanded, more and more powerful kingdom uh, of influence godly influence um, since Pentecost. Now, historically, it's been modestly popular throughout history, um, much more popular after the Reformation. In America, it was quite popular until the World Wars, but today, much more rare. It has been more prominent after times of spiritual revival, so the Reformation, the New World, the Great Awakening. And it's also more compelling when you take a worldwide or historical view. Look at the growth of Christianity over time. Look at the growth of Christianity outside of the U.S. and Western Europe. Look at the birth rates for believers, right? All of those point to the growth of Christianity and a post-millennial mindset. And then third, we have the amillennial view. So put an A in front of it, and that means no or nothing, right? So you think about a theist believes in God, an atheist does not believe in God. An agnostic is someone who does not know. A Gnostic is someone who has special knowledge. So you put the A in front of it, and it means no millennium or no literal millennium. They don't deny the scriptures. They just don't think it's a literal millennium. Again, they would focus on the church age as fulfilling this passage. And then we have the second coming of Jesus, ultimately shown in chapter 20, verse 9. Uh, Satan has some extra brief havoc at the end and then things close out. So the thousand years are figurative. You know, where the post-millennial view is, has an optimistic trajectory and the premillennial view is pessimistic, amillennial implies a back and forth over history. And more than the other two views, it has a big emphasis on the phrase the already and the not yet. 
the God's kingdom is already, it does exist in the already, but it doesn't nearly fully exist in the already and won't. And therefore there's the not yet. And so the already and the not yet is probably the, the quickest, cleanest way to think about the back and forth view of amillennialism. There is a coexistence and an ongoing conflict between good and evil. I like what Ed Dobson says about amillennial. He says its adherents are not looking for the coming of the kingdom as our premillennials, and they're not trying to bring in the kingdom as our postmillennials. Rather, they believe that the kingdom is already present in the church on earth and look to extend it. This is also where you get Revelation 7, the way I frame that up, is the church militant on earth and the church triumphant in heaven. You can hear the already and the not yet of those two phrases. Or think about a verse like Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses in heaven, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, i.e. on earth. Historically, this view was dominant from Augustine to the Reformation, and it's still been popular since then. Okay, so what do we do with all this? We'll we'll talk about that after the break. Uh, In the meantime, on Facebook, like Pure Radio, friend me there. Uh, The podcast for the former shows are on Facebook, SoundCloud, Spotify, under the Word Diet. Questions and comments on my Facebook are welcome. Hang in there for one more minute, and we'll talk more about the Millennium. Welcome back to the Word Diet. We're in Revelation 20 this week and talking about the millennium in particular. And in the last segment, I talked about the three views on the millennium. Uh, The millennium is the thousand-year reign of Christ. The first view is pre-millennial, that Christ comes before, pre, the millennium, right? So pre-millennial. And this group believes in a literal thousand years after the coming of Christ in which he will reign. Relatively pessimistic view. Uh, It sees things basically going down the toilet, and then Christ comes back to rescue things and then usher in his peaceful and awesome kingdom. The second view is post-millennial, that Christ comes post after the millennium. And this view sees the thousand years as a figurative thousand years, the church age, actually, uh, the kingdom being ushered in with the cross, the resurrection, and Pentecost. And postmillennials are the optimistic view that the kingdom of God not only began in great earnest uh, at the time of Christ, but will continue to grow through the power of God and particularly the Holy Spirit. And then there's the amillennial view, ah meaning no millennium, again, a figurative view of the thousand years, again, looking at the thousand years as the church age, but they're not pessimistic or optimistic. They're more back and forth, uh, that evil and good will battle back and forth. There's two powerful forces. Uh, God and the devil and the world, uh, our weakness uh, versus God's strength, basically. Uh, The kingdom would like to expand, but we're so limited, even with the greatness of the resurrection and Pentecost. So those are the three basic views. So what do you do with this? Which one is it? Well, I'm not going to give you that answer, and I don't know that I have an answer for you anyway, but a couple things to think about. First, all of this is a call to sobriety, humility, and further study. Biblically, a lot of it depends on what you do with certain phrases like last days and in the day of the Lord. Again, passages like Acts 2.17 clearly define the last days as a church age, but there are other passages that clearly seem to be referring to some sort of future end time. So what do we do with that? I think it's also sobering that the views have changed dramatically throughout history and as a function of current events. 
And so if you're in your current moment and you believe X, but current events change and you might believe Y, that should really help us stay humble and sober about our views. I think another thing to consider is that the viewpoint likely depends on when and where you're looking. If you're comparing Western Europe and the U.S. to 50 or 60 years ago, then maybe not so much. Uh, but if you look at the rest of the world, uh, you know, for example, South Korea has surpassed the U.S. for number one in missionaries. You look at the believers in Africa, China, and India, uh, it's, it's easy to be optimistic. So just make sure you're not simply looking at uh, America over the last 30 years as you put together your eschatology. There's even a lot of confusion within evangelical circles. Think back to 10 to 20 years ago, two of the most popular books out there were the Left Behind series, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, and that laid out a premillennial view. But at the same time, you had the Wilkinson book about the prayer of Jabez, uh, which was a postmillennial view, right? The, the optimism, give me more territory, Lord, that I can expand your kingdom. And so... Uh, even at, at the same time, we held these views uh, at the same time, being in, you know, interested in the LaHaye books and the Jabez books. There's songs that talk about post-millennial things. Uh, Greater things are still to be done in the city. Or the Wren Collective Experiment song I love called Build Your Kingdom Here. I mean, those are post-millennial in their view, even among evangelicals who have tended to see things from a pre-millennial mindset. Here's a great quote from Elton Trueblood, 1952, and he says, Ours is undoubtedly a dark time. Ours is also an amazingly bright time. Widespread loss of Christian conviction, but the appearance of new Christian movements of astonishing vigor. And I think Trueblood's comment, even 70 years ago, is a great reminder that there's always good stuff and bad stuff going on, and we just need to be careful uh, in our view about these things. Good Christians and very smart people disagree on these matters. And so outside of the essentials, for example, the second coming of Christ will occur. These are not a matter of required unity or orthodoxy. So if you find yourself or others fighting over this, uh, that's clearly sin. Right? It's not a matter. It's not that clear in the scriptures where you're going to get that excited about it. Steve Gregg talks about a division of prophecy enthusiasts uh, between those who share my views on Revelation and those who've not yet heard them convincingly presented. And that's how the fervent uh, revelationists often handle things. It reminds me of Proverbs 18:17. In a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone else comes forward and cross-examines. And I think if you listen to the different views, they all sound quite reasonable, really. They all have their weaknesses. They all have their strengths. I guess I would say, look, if you've only heard one view, make sure you listen, and you really care about this, make sure you listen to the best of the views of the other sides before you get excited about your own views. At the least, we can agree to be pro-millennial. In other words, I'm for it whenever or how it happens. Or pan-millennial is another cute phrase. It'll all pan out in the end. I like what Tony Campolo says here. I'm on the welcoming committee, not the planning committee. Right, we just don't know. And there are clearly strengths and weaknesses of each view. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. In a large sense, it just doesn't matter. Uh, and so it's hard for me even to get all that passionate about trying to figure out stuff. It's a diversion from the larger issues within Revelation and in general. And it's certainly not an issue over which to divide or cause disunity. To know he is coming is far more important than to know when he is coming. And every school of eschatological thought believes Christ will return to triumph, judge, 
and reign forever. It's kind of like creation. I mean, it's kind of interesting to wrestle with how that happened, but does it really matter? Uh, it matters, but it's not a primary issue. So wrestle with it, but don't make it an end-all be-all. You know, one of the punchlines of apocalyptic literature is we will meet Christ when he returns or when we die. We don't know when either is going to happen, so be prepared. As uh, Dave Stone put it, when the apocalyptic dust settles, make sure you're standing with Jesus. Finally, Scotty Smith says, The very fact that men and women whom I love and respect so much in the Lord have settled into different millennial camps has actually brought freedom rather than confusion to my heart as I ponder the meaning of Revelation 20. And hopefully this discussion has given you freedom as well. It can be confusing, but hopefully uh, I've given you some freedom here. So what are the strengths and weaknesses of each view and how their logic plays out or tends to play out? Our view of the millennium does affect the way we live our lives. We could have right eschatology and wrong behavior. So let's make sure the behavior's in line. Let's also wrestle with where our eschatology takes us. We don't want our eschatology to cause us to sin, might be another way to paraphrase it. So what are the strengths of the views? Well, the, the post-millennials are very strong on the power of the gospel to redeem all parts of life and are called to be salt and light in the world. They take redemption really seriously. They take kingdom really seriously. Matthew 13, 31 and 32, the parable of the mustard seed ends with, it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. And that's what the kingdom is that Christ ushers in in Matthew 13. Or 1 John 4, 4, you dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. In contrast, premillennial implies the world will, will degenerate. Uh, and I think that's, that's the toughest part for me about premillennial, because the idea elsewhere is that God is going to start and finish good works. You have the rock kingdom of Daniel 2. You've got Matthew 16. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Or the Messianic reference in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. A strength of the premillennial view is that it demands a strong faith which looks to avoid compromise, and they are especially eager in their anticipation of Christ's return. For better or worse, post-mills tend toward optimism, pre-mills tend toward pessimism, and ah-mills reflect both the post-millennial optimism about the gospel and its power and the pre-millennial pessimism about sin nature and the world. Where pre-mill is really strong on sin's power and our need for salvation, the post-mill view is strong on salvation and redemption. Pre-mill tends to be focused more on saving individuals and conversion. Post-millennials tend to be more interested in discipleship and redeeming culture. A lot of reform movements have been born of post-millennialism and from evangelical Protestants. If you think about the anti-slavery movement and others, it comes from a vision that culture can be changed and redeemed through the power of God's kingdom. And for better or worse, this affects how you see the book of Revelation at all, right? Premillennial tends to see Revelation as mostly about the second coming of Christ. The Amil and post-mill views tend to see it mostly about the church age with the second coming coming at the end. 
Now, the weaknesses of these views come from their potential strengths, right? Post-millennials tend toward utopianism, right? That's where optimism can extend. Pre-mill tends towards fatalism and being too much heaven-oriented, not enough earth-oriented. And amills can tend towards apathy and being too present-oriented. Post-mills have often idealized government as a means to the end of ushering in God's kingdom. Pre-mills have often played out as uh, in terms of social isolation, and amills often are too complacent and worldly. I think an intriguing weakness of pre-mill is that it implies a sort of deism, that the spirit is not all that powerful or even basically a non-factor, and that God is not all that involved except for creation, some in the Old Testament sending Christ in the end. God is not all that involved in pre-mill compared to the other views. As we talked about in our intro to chapter 6, the pre-mills tend to play the dating game. They, looking for the coming of Christ, they have a tendency to get predictive and the troubles that come with that. Pre-mills tend to focus on contemporary America and Europe rather than looking at world history and the rest of the world. And one last pre-mill problem, it implicitly downplays the impact of Revelation on early generations and the earliest generation, particularly John's audience. Ronald Nash says, if the pre-trib futuristic interpretation of Revelation were correct, this magnificent book would be largely irrelevant to the persecution and suffering of earlier generations of believers. But when the tribulation is the lot of most Christians during the history of the church, Revelation suddenly becomes the most relevant book in the Bible. Let Satan do to us what he will. The book proclaims God is still working out his purposes in the world. No matter how hopeless things may appear, God's triumph is assured. I find things attractive in all three of the views, but I'm going to agree with Scotty Smith, at least as a teacher. Uh, He calls himself a functioning amillennial. And if you think about the amillennial, they are really big on the tension of the already and the not yet. And that's where I want to leave you. Uh, Whatever your views are, make sure that you've got that tension in your mind. And as a teacher, it's relatively easy to teach amill as well. It's the most applicable and the easiest to teach. And so I've been, in essence, underlying that as I've gone. So stay with the tension of the already and the not yet is a punchline for this section of the show. All right, we need to take a break and we will be back in a minute. In the meantime, consider becoming a P3 partner and please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We have been in Revelation 20 this week and focused on the millennium, particularly Revelation 20 verses 1 through 3. We've talked about the three different views of the millennium, strengths and weaknesses of those. And so uh, it's a really big, confusing topic that people get really excited about. Uh, And if you didn't catch those segments, I hope you catch them uh, later in the week or on Spotify when that becomes available. In the last segment, I want to talk about the rapture. And so if we talked about the, the millennium, makes sense to talk about the rapture here. Even though it's not clearly mentioned in Revelation, maybe alluded to in chapter 17, verse 14, and chapter 19, verse 14, that's not a problem for the concept. Remember that Revelation 19, 20 is on the defeat of evil, not really talking about the glorification of Christians. As we'll talk about next week, uh, there's likely two different judgments. There's the judgment seat of Christ on the white throne judgment, and the white throne judgment is how it's depicted in Revelation, because again, the focus is on the defeat of evil, not what happens to us so much. 
So, but rapture's not in there. It still makes sense to talk about it uh, f- uh, in this context. So the term is not in the Bible either. It's derived from the Latin term rapio, which is from 1 Thessalonians 4.17, uh, a word that's translated caught up in the NIV. And there are three key passages on the rapture, um, Matthew 24, verses 26 through 31, Matthew 15, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 26 and 51 through 57, and then 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Those are the passages to read. All eschatological schools of thought have a view of the rapture. Has to be the case, right? That Christians are taken away is the idea that we are raptured up to heaven uh, at the second coming of Christ. It's most prominent in the pre-mill view. Uh, again, the the reading of history that Christ comes, uh, and then there's the thousand-year reign of Christ. Christ comes before, pre, the millennium. And the pre-mills believe in a literal seven-year, capital G, capital T, tribulation. And the rapture then could occur pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, before the seven-year tribulation, in the middle of it, or after it. Those are the three possibilities. So a little confusing, but not too bad. Within pre-mill, pre-millennium, Christ comes before the millennium, there are three views of the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, that Christ comes before the tribulation to rapture the church, that the rapture occurs in the middle of the tribulation, and after the tribulation as the millennium is beginning. For amill and postmill, this is easy. The rapture coincides with the second coming, uh, and then we're done. So let's focus on those three views within premillennialism, right? So post-tribulation is the idea that it comes at the end of the seven-year tribulation and aligns with the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, this was the dominant premillennial view until the 19th century with the dispensationalism taught by Darby. The best part about this view uh, is that it obviates the need for two returns of Christ. Uh, The way this gets finessed by the other views is, well, he didn't really return the first time to rapture the church. Uh, He meets them in the clouds, so he doesn't get all the way back. And a lot of people consider that uh, to be unwelcome finesse uh, to that idea, right? But post-trib has the advantage of there being a single return of Christ, uh, that the rapture coincides with uh, the, the millennium. And again, that's a strength of Amil and post-mill here as well. Mid-trib is probably the strangest uh, view uh, to most people, but it is alluded to in Daniel 9, 27. And then think about all the references we've had in Revelation to three and a half years. And that would be the middle of the seven-year period of tribulation. So the mid-trib view uh, has some weight. Second Thessalonians 2 seems to allude to it as well, the idea that we uh, would face some trouble as a church, and then maybe the rapture takes us out of some of, that, some of that trouble. And then pre-tribulation is the view that Christians will avoid the coming wrath of the great tribulation, the great troubles of that seven-year period. Now, in terms of avoiding wrath and difficulties, mid-trib and pre-trib can be escapist. They don't have to be, but when you talk to people that hold those views, sometimes you get the impression that they're sure hoping it's that so they don't have to go through all or uh, some of the great tribulation. J. Vernon McGee says, God has promised to deliver us from judgment. But Matthew Henry says, the first that died, died a martyr. Righteousness delivers from the sting of death, but not from the stroke of it. 
And so, you know, we know God is not so concerned about our circumstances or as our character. We know that in history, God certainly does not keep us from suffering. In fact, suffering is aligned with the suffering of Jesus. And so it's not something to be avoided. Uh, so it's not a problem to not want suffering, but it is problematic to demand it, expect it, uh, and to build your eschatology around that hope. And part of the pre-trib view is arguing from silence. Uh, in Revelation, the church is not mentioned in chapters 4 through 16. J. Vernon McGee says it has gone off the air because it went up in the air. And there's something to that, but a couple of concerns with that idea. One is that the church is certainly in view in chapters 17 and 18. It seems to be in view in chapters 11 and certainly the flashback of chapter 12. And if you're going to argue from silence, you got to be consistent with that, right? There's no also no mention of the Antichrist. There's no mention of a rebuilt temple. Uh, there's really very little on Israel even, and Israel often figures prominently in the pre-mill view. There's only a passing reference in chapter 7, verse 4. So if arguing from silence is important, you just have to make sure you do it consistently. Now, all of this requires a literal seven-year Great Tribulation. Again, if you're arguing from silence, that's also troubling because it's not directly mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's usually taken from a figurative reading, oddly, ironically, of Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27. And so, uh, again, it's certainly possible to have these views, uh, but uh, it can be challenging to get there and to hold it with consistency. Let me give you two punchlines about the rapture, I think, that are, are much bigger than all these details. I like what Andre Seyou says here. Until the rapture happens, whether it happens pre or mid or post-tribulation, I expect Christians will excoriate one another over it in great plumes of print. And while this side show goes on, another rapture proceeds with quiet, unrelenting morbidity, a sort of anti-rapture in which the ungodly are being snatched away to judgment one soul at a time. And so that lets me reiterate one of the recurring and I think the most interesting themes in today's discussion and really revelation in general. Do not miss the big picture. I mean, it's fine to wrestle with the rapture and when it happens, but don't let that distract you from loving God and loving other people. Don't let it distract you from being ready. Don't let it distract you from uh, evangelism and ministry and discipleship and loving your neighbor. Uh, it's it's not that big of a deal. Uh, either way, be ready. Either way, love your neighbor. Either way, do evangelism and ministry. Or to put it more simply, he's coming or you're going. It doesn't really matter that much, right? So keep the big picture the big picture. Whereas Seyu's quote talks about it in light of non-believers, I like what Russell Moore says about nominal Christians. In his book, Onward, page 24, he talks about the rapture of nominal Christians that vanish from the pews in a post-Christian culture. Moore writes, cultural Christianity is herded out by natural selection. That sort of nominal religion, when bearing the burden of the embarrassment of a controversial Bible, is no more equipped to survive in a secularizing America than a declawed cat release in the wild. Who then is left behind? It will be those defined not by a Christian America, but by a Christian gospel. All right, there's a lot of pseudo-Christianity out there. There's a lot of cultural Christianity out there, and those people will be left behind. They will be raptured out of the church, so to speak. I think I think about this mostly uh, with my children, right? The goal is not to get them to behave. The goal is not them to get, to get them to go to church until they're 18. 
the goal is to get them to be disciples of Jesus. When we look at believers in the church, the goal is not simply attendance and conversion. Following the ministry of model of Jesus, it's disciple makers, making disciple makers who can make other disciple makers. The Great Commission is not simply about conversion, but teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And what's your plan for that? What's your church's plan for that? Without discipleship, right, people get raptured out of the church, so to speak. And again, that's a crucial issue when you're trying to line up your ministry with the ministry of Jesus. So again, wrestle with the rapture, but we have bigger fish to fry, much bigger fish to fry, and do not miss the, the, the big things to focus on the small things. So we've had a long discussion about the things we do and don't know, the weaknesses and strengths of various views, etc. Let's close with what we do know from the scriptures. What's the most likely order of events? Well, first, we know that there'll be a distress, a tribulation with a capital T or a lowercase t. There's always tribulation. The question is whether there will be a capital T tribulation at the end. Christ will return with the church triumphant, this is the resurrection of the Christian dead. They'll have the rapture of the Christian living. 1 Corinthians, 20, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26 says, Then the end will come, defined as defeating and destroying all worldly authority, and then finally death. Uh, all this is all over Revelation as well as 1 Corinthians 15. And then this is followed by the new heavens and earth of Revelation 21 and 22. Here's what Paul says about the big picture in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And that's the punchline here, the resurrection of Christ. That's what we put our hope in. The timing, the, the how, the when, none of that matters next to belief in the resurrection and belief in the power of what that resurrection has done in individual lives and in the kingdom. Ultimately, there's an already and ultimately there's a not yet. Let's make sure we believe in both of those. Lord, be with us as we try to live out these principles, as we try to understand how our eschatology affects the way we see the world and your kingdom and your spirit and what you did in defeating death and the grave. Let us not underestimate what you've accomplished through the ministry, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of his spirit. May it empower us to do great things for your kingdom, Lord, today and always. In the powerful and precious name of Jesus Christ, amen. It's been great to be with you today. I hope today's show has been helpful. I know it's a, a mouthful, but I hope it's changed the way you think about God and the power of what he's done in your life and in the world around us. Please join us on Facebook. Uh, old, old podcasts are available on SoundCloud and Spotify. Interact with me on Facebook with questions and comments. We hope you join us next time on The Word Diet.